Good morning, good morning, good morning. If it is your first Sunday ever at a City Light gathering, I am so sorry. You are so confused right now. Why is this man wearing a cat on his shirt? My name is Gavin, and as I serve as one of the pastors here, and uh, it is true, I have never felt more ridiculous than wearing a uh, cat sweater in front of a few hundred people. Uh, can we say thank you to the choir one more time for worshiping with us this morning? The uh, Christmas ornaments in that beard just take things to another level to remember that for next year. Uh, if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 4, if you can take me seriously. Chapter 4 and verses 4 through 5 this morning. Uh, today is the third Sunday of Advent, uh, which is the week of joy, the Sunday of joy. Now, at City Light, uh, we have a unique culture, and that one thing we strive to do is we take God very seriously. Uh, we take his word very seriously. We take the gospel and uh, his command to make disciples among the nations very seriously. We do not take ourselves very seriously. Amen? There's a difference. And uh, one of the unusual byproducts of that culture has been ugly Christmas sweater Sunday that comes on the third Sunday of Advent when we celebrate joy. Now, um, by way of reminder, by the way, I named my cat Chris Haruska. I don't know if you like Chris Haruska here, but... We're going to call him Chris. Um, by way of reminder, what we're doing in Advent season, it's, it's not just a prolonged season to enjoy Christmas. It's really purposeful. Uh, it comes on the calendar every year in the life of the church, and uh, it's really here for two reasons. One, we sort of look in the Old Testament and identify with the Old Testament saints. And we realize that since Genesis 3, when our first parents fell into sin, that God's people were longing for the coming Messiah. Uh, there was prophecy after prophecy saying the Savior of the world would come. And so they look forward with anticipation to what we look at in hindsight, which is the coming of Jesus Christ. But additionally, we as New Testament believers look forward, realizing Jesus is going to Advent a second time. And just as the Old Testament saints look forward to his first coming, we look forward to his second coming when he is going to come in and usher in the full benefits for his people. And the four main benefits that we celebrate traditionally at Advent are the hope, peace, joy, and love of Jesus. And it's my great joy, as it were, to, to preach on... Oh, I keep seeing so many tacky sweaters this morning. It is so distracting. I just realized, John, I saw yours. That is special, man. That is... We're going to need grace to get through this. Um, this morning, we're going to preach on joy. I'm so joyful right now. Thank you for wearing that. Um, and this week, uh, you know, it's our typical MO at City Light. We preach through books of the Bible. We pick a book of the Bible and we go, you know, thought by thought, verse by verse. Uh, but in this season, where it's a little more themed, we still want to anchor in one passage. And so we find one passage. And the preacher's chore every week is sort of that llama, uh, is, is to find one, I got to quit looking out, find one passage and really anchor ourselves in that passage. So my chore this week was to look through all the Bible and it was overwhelming. What I realized was scripture drips with joy. It's one of the great mega and meta narratives and themes of the Bible is the joy that we have in the Lord. And so I did find one text that I'm going to anchor us in this morning, but before I do that, just by way of introduction, just want to give kind of a flyover um, of some, some scriptures and truths about joy, sort of from the cutting room floor that didn't make it into my sermon, uh, but that I just found incredibly joy-filling this week. And so number one, and they'll be up on the screens, joy is found in the presence of God. 
Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. Number two, joy is a byproduct of walking with the Spirit of God. So Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. Number three, joy was actually the motivating variable for Jesus as he approached the cross. Hebrews 12 and verse 2 says that looking at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Number three, experiencing God's joy actually strengthens us. We derive strength from experiencing the joy of the Lord. Nehemiah 8 and 10. Then he said to them, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And number five, Jesus's advent or Jesus's coming brings us joy. Luke 2 and 10 says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. From Genesis to Revelation, this book is a book of joy. You know, my best attempt to define, to give a definition to the biblical idea of joy would be a happiness in the soul. It's a happiness on the inside. I would define joy as being an inward delight that comes from God. And there's this interesting thing about biblical joy. It is in some ways an emotion, like all other emotions, and yet it's different in that it can coexist for the Christian with every other emotion across the human emotion spectrum. And so we see that for the Christian, uh, we can go through seasons of grief, and that's a good thing to grieve. We can go through seasons of anger. We can go through seasons of disappointment, and yet for the Christian, it's the joy of the Lord that, that underrides all of those and transcends over them. We see this in passages like 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 10, where Paul says that he's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so as we look at this theme of, of rejoicing this morning, I just I want to give permission uh, for all of the human emotions, Okay. Um, We have a book in the Bible called Lamentations. Did you know that? (laughs) And so um, the Christian gospel gives room for for everything that we feel. Um, And it's okay to grieve and it's okay to lament. And yet biblical joy does provide a buoyancy to the soul, as Tim Keller calls it. The idea being we're going to get pushed down and we're going to go through seasons of trials. But there's something about the hope of Jesus Christ that brings our joy back to the surface. And so we're going to talk about biblical joy this morning. And uh, before we dive into Philippians 4 regarding joy, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to start off by encouraging you, City Light, the people of City Light Church. One of the most consistent and regular things that I hear by way of feedback is when I, pe- when I meet people from City Light, I find them to be authentically joy-filled people. You have a joyful church. Uh, I hear people say, Man, when I came to the gathering for the first time, One of the first observations I made was that it's a culture of joy. And uh, I love that because I think that's evidence of God's grace among us. If in the presence of God there's fullness of joy, if joy is a fruit of the Spirit, um, then it's evidence of God's grace that we are a joy-filled people. So one, I want to say thank you for not being stiff and angry and religious and weird, but being Jesus people and joy-filled people. Number two, I want us to approach the Word of God humbly this morning and put ourselves under it. We're going to take a a look at a passage where Paul takes the word joy and he turns it into a verb and calls us to rejoice. 
And I want us to honestly ask the question, am I a person who is a rejoicer? Is my soul happy in God? And my prayer is that the Word of God would shape us this morning to be an even more joy-filled people. Not just like a a happy, clappy, plastic kind of joy, but a spirit-empowered, gospel-rooted, Jesus-gritty, joy-filled people. Amen? Praying that God would do that this morning. So let's turn our attentions to the Word of God. Um, We're going to be in verses 4 and 5. I'll reread them real quick, and then I'll give you our outline for this morning. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let me unpack these three verse, or these two verses in three categories. The first category I want to look at with you this morning is the command of joy. If you've got your program, write that down. The command of joy. Pull out your iPhone, write that down, take some notes. The command of joy. One of the first things that struck me about this passage as I studied this week is that rejoicing in the Lord is a command, right? Notice the phrasing in there. It's not a suggestion. It's not a question. God commands us in his word, rejoice in the Lord. Now, it doesn't feel like a command. Do not steal. That feels like a command. You know, do not kill. That feels like a command. But can God really command us to rejoice? Well, he does. He commands us to rejoice. In fact, this is the only command in the Bible that I can think of that's repeated this way for emphasis, right? What does he say? Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. It's almost like the apostle Paul can hear our argument and he's going to, he's going to answer our argument before we can even spit it out, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Well, Paul, you don't understand. I will say it again. Rejoice. He commands us to rejoice in him. In fact, if you follow the logic of Philippians four, that whole paragraph essentially commands us to rejoice. And then it promises peace. It says, rejoice in the Lord always, pray with thanksgiving, that's the command, and then the promise is the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. So he doesn't command us to be peace-filled, but he does command us to be joyful. And so even thinking back to, to Cameron's sermon last week, if we're someone who struggles with anxiety and a lack of peace, we should probably trace that upstream and say, am I living out the command to rejoice in the Lord? It's an absolute biblical command. Now, I think because we don't often think about rejoicing in the Lord as a command from God, we're not really prone to to call someone out on not rejoicing. We don't confront people on being a non-rejoicer, do we? If a Christian brother or sister is having an affair and we know about it, we're probably going to talk to them about that. If they're stealing financially, we're probably going to talk to them about that. But somehow, in church culture, it's become somehow acceptable to live a life of perpetual cynicism and criticism and a lack of rejoicing. But church, if I could just say, it's not. It is a command of the Lord to rejoice in him. So let me ask you, are are you a joy-filled person or are you the kind of person that sucks the life out of people? If you're unsure, turn to the person next to you and just ask him. (laughs) Is there a reason they haven't asked me to be on the welcoming committee at the church? Yeah. Because your heart has never told your face that you're happy. You should, work on, you should work on that, right? I don't know if you guys knew this, but cynicism, criticism, grumbling, complaining, and snarky emails are not a fruit of the Spirit. Did you know that? It's true. Some of you are like, I know it's not a fruit of the Spirit. It's a spiritual gift, and I have it. Someone needs to keep an eye on everything that's wrong and let you know, you know? 
No, you're just an unpleasant person. That's not a spiritual gift at all. That's uh, actually something that needs repented of, not celebrated. And so I just, in all seriously, say we need to take this command seriously. God commands us, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, it's a command. Let me, let me bring to the surface two aspects of this command, because it is nuanced. Uh, number one, in this command, when does it say we are to rejoice? Rejoice in the Lord always, okay? So number one, we're to rejoice in the Lord always. In the good times, yes. In the bad times, yes. In seasons of triumph, yes. In seasons of trial and challenge, yes. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. Now, if I can get serious for a moment, I, I, um, I don't take lightly preaching a text like this. I'll just confess some insecurity. I realize anytime I'm in a room like this, every one of you has circumstances and stories that I don't know about. Some of the things you're going through, no one in the room knows about, and they're heavy and they're real. And so I don't want to downplay your circumstances. So I get a little insecure as a young man in the pulpit saying, you need to rejoice in the Lord no matter your circumstances. But what gave me confidence this week is that this isn't my command, and I don't know, but God knows all of your circumstances better than you, and it's his command. And so this is the Lord, and the authority is in his word, and he is commanding you, no matter your circumstances, rejoice in the Lord always. Furthermore, I think the context of this passage matters. Remember, who did God inspire this word to be written through? The Apostle Paul. On what occasion is he writing this letter? He's imprisoned. He's been arrested for his faith and for his ministry. We don't know if he's under house arrest and shackled and being guarded or if he's in an actual Roman prison cell. But nonetheless, his life is not rosy in this moment. And it's from bleak circumstances that he tells the Philippian people, rejoice in the Lord always. It's a command. Furthermore, the Philippian recipients to this letter were not going through a wonderful season. One of the occasions of the writing was there was conflict in the church. These ladies were not rejoicing. Iodia and Syntyche, they were two ladies that were fighting in the church, and they were leaders in the church, and there was conflict in the church. And yet, not only one time, but three times in Philippians, Paul commands them, rejoice in the Lord. It's an absolute command. So the first aspect of this command is that we're to rejoice always. But number two, in what are we to rejoice? Rejoice in the Lord. So what I love about that is that Paul's not calling us to rejoice in our circumstances. Like, just pretend everything's okay. He's not saying that. Don't rejoice in your circumstances. Instead, turn your attention to where? The Lord. And even though you might lament your circumstances, you can still rejoice in the Lord even through your trials. Do you see that? Uh, In fact, um, so I mentioned Iodia and Syntyche. That's kind of the context of this chapter. Two ladies that are fighting. He tells them to rejoice in the Lord. The verse right before it, he reminds them that their names are in the book of life. So I think at least part of what it looks like for us to rejoice in the Lord is to rejoice that our names are written in the book of life. Did you guys know there is a record book in heaven? And names are actually written in it for anyone who ever has, will, or or does currently trust in the Lord Jesus. There is a record book in heaven, and your name is in it if you have trusted in Jesus. That's good news. My name has been in a few books before. Most of them were not good. You know, um, some of you are in prison books, you know, the log. Um, I was in a who's who among American high school students. Do you know what that was? 
a big scam. It meant nothing. It's like, you got it better than a C average, so we're going to print your name in a book, and uh, then you will buy it for $35 so you can show it off at graduation. Like that, your name in that book is not that impressive. But the book of life, there's a record in heaven of whose name is in the book of life. And we are to rejoice in the gospel that our names are written there. There's this part in the gospels, actually, where Jesus sends out the 72 for ministry. Do you remember that? Two by two, they go out. And they come back to Jesus, and they're all fired up. They're rejoicing. They're saying, even the demons submit to us. We can even handle snakes. They're all rejoicing in their ministry. And what does Jesus tell them? He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Do not rejoice that the demons submit, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. What Jesus is saying is don't don't rejoice in the ebbs and flows, the highs and the lows and things that are going to come and go, but rejoice in the sure promise of the gospel that if you have trusted in Jesus, your name is written in the book of life. So let me ask you, how are you doing with this command of God? Are you rejoicing always in the Lord? That's God's will for your life. That is his command. Now I need to confess I am not naturally a rejoicer. Some of you just have a positive demeanor and an optimistic personality. That's not me. My my brain is like a heat-seeking missile. Like I just don't feel balanced in life unless there's something that I'm kind of anxious about in my own life. Like I will find the one thing that's wrong and let it um, eclipse the 10,000 things that are right. Is anyone anyone like that in in this room? It's like doing a do-it-yourself project. You know, you might have 1,600 square feet of perfect drywall, but there's one nail that you didn't get countersunk. And what do you see every time you look at the wall? The one nail, not the 10,000 that you got right. You see that nail and you curse it, you know. You got four walls of perfect paint and there's one drip in the corner. Where do your eyes go every time you see that paint job? That corner. That's me with my life, with uh, the church and how things are going. It doesn't matter how good, I'll find the one thing and I'll, I'll be discouraged, and, uh, but the Holy Spirit of God convicted me as I studied this this week. I thought, well, I'm just, I'm just not that joyful, God. And I felt like God told me that joy is a command, not a personality type. My, my natural demeanor is not an excuse for not rejoicing in the Lord. So I don't know if anyone can relate to me in that, some naturally glass half empty kind of people. But if I could, I just want to preach the gospel to myself and to people who have a hard time rejoicing this morning. The gospel says this, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so is it a sin not to rejoice in the Lord always? It is. And so I'm a sinner. I'm not naturally a rejoicer. And yet Jesus Christ advented at Christmas. Why? To forgive the sins of grumbling, ungrateful hearts like my own. And where we fail to rejoice, Jesus never did. Jesus Christ, even on his worst day, in his worst moment, chose to rejoice in the Lord. Hebrews 12 and 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so Jesus obeyed the Father, rejoiced in the Father, and on that cross, he paid an extraordinary price to save cynical, cranky, and unappreciative people like me and like you. And not only that, but he has taken our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. He's put his Holy Spirit inside of us. And scripture says that a fruit of that spirit is joy. And so if you're naturally a a discouraged person, I want you to be encouraged in the gospel this morning. That Jesus Christ rejoices for you and his Holy Spirit is in you. And he will help you to live out this command to his glory. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. That's the command of joy. Now, number two, I want to point out the witness of joy. 
The scripture says that our internal rejoicing should become visible externally. Let me show you. Look at verse 5 now. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Our reasonableness is the outward working of our internal joy. Other Bible translations translate that word reasonableness as patience or gentleness or forbearance. It brings with it this idea that even when we're treated unjustly or unfairly, that we're not going to blow our lid, that we're not going to freak out. It's this idea of a rooted patience and joy in Jesus despite unfair circumstances. So I think there's lots of application for how this could be visible around Christmas. I remember last Christmas, I was at the Gretna Outlet Mall, and the parking was kind of like city light, non-existent. And so I'm waiting, and I'm driving the minivan, and like all three of my kids are having to pee and hungry and whiny and I'm cranky and I don't really like crowds and I loathe shopping and so we're going to get in and out and, and I see this lady who's ready to back out of her stall and I'm like, ah, and so I drive up to the stall and I turn my turn indicator on as though to signal I'm going to pull into the stall as soon as she pulls out. Well, some people, when they see you do that, like to take their time. If you notice that, they're going to like check their tire pressure and check the oil and get it nice and warmed up. You're like, come on. You see me and patiently wait. She pulls out and I start to pull in. I kid you not, this little hipster, this skinny jean wearing, cigarette smoking hipster with no kids who doesn't understand what's going on in my minivan, he steals my parking stall. And in that moment, I thought, I could beat the snot out of you. You are a small-framed man. Like those skinny jeans. <laughs> like I eat meat in my house. And, and anyway, so I'm boiling on the inside. And that's where I just had to realize, like, gentle forbearance. Like, you little punk. You can steal my parking stall, but you cannot steal my joy. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Yeah, you just... <laughs> drive off. Any of you been there? Someone cuts the line on you at the shopping mall, like you've been waiting there patiently, and they just pretend like they can't see you, and you just give them those eyes, like, (laughs) really? Like, I didn't see, like, you're invisible, and you'd think I didn't see you, you know? But gentle forbearance is when, even when we want to blow the lid, that there's something about our joy that says, no, 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 I'm not going to get caught up. I'm going to keep everything in perspective. And those are some funny examples, but, but I think this joy in Jesus allows us that even when everything in life comes undone, that the Christian doesn't need to come undone. That when all of our circumstances come unraveled, that we don't need to come unraveled. That even when we lose everything, we don't lose heart because we can't lose our joy because our joy is secure in Jesus. And what Paul is saying in verse 5, he calls it reasonableness or gentle forbearance. It should be evident to people. That should be part of our Christ, Christian witness. Like, people should look at us in seasons and say, you should really be freaking out right now, but you're not freaking out. You should really be losing it right now, but you're not losing it. No, because my joy is in Jesus. It's part of our witness. Um, One of the most joyful people I know is Jack Arendt. He's coughing up here in this beautiful sweater. He's one of our elders and one of my best friends, been a mentor and and a guy I've looked up to forever. But... um, the only person maybe more joyful than Jack that I've ever met was his mom. His mom's name was Rena, 
And my best buddy Todd and I used to rent a house from Rena in college. And so every month our rent would come due, and I just made a habit, instead of mailing in the rent check, I would just drive to her retirement village and drop it off. And it was just an excuse uh, to visit with Rena and to check in. And selfishly, I loved spending time with Rena because her joy was contagious. So every week I'd go in, I'd, I'd bring in the check, ask how she was doing, and she'd ask me the same question every time, uh, did you find a wife yet, you know? And I'd always say, no, Rena, I'm waiting for you to decide it's okay to remarry. You know, her husband had died years before. And she'd laugh. She'd ask me what the Lord was teaching me. Sometimes she would sing a song. And she just had a contagious joy about her. And then over the last decade, as she started to age and her health started to fail, the parents had to move her into a nursing home, assisted uh, living facility. And Jack would say that the, she was um, all of the staff's favorite person. Because she had a joyful spirit, and they'd walk by her room, and she'd be singing songs to Jesus. She'd invite them in and love on the staff, and she would share Jesus with them. In fact, I shared this same story um, at the 8 o'clock hour, and a young lady named Kayla came up to me in tears, and she said, I lived in Ames, and I took care of Rena for the last three years of her life, and she was absolutely everything you said. And I'm at this church. I didn't know this, or I'm at this church because she and her family invited me to church because they knew that I was coming here for PA school. She's at the med center now. So here you see the fruit of Rena's joy. It was her reasonableness being seen by everyone that even had a witness on Kayla that brought her here this morning. And it was so neat to see that, you know, aging is a humbling thing. If you haven't been around someone who's dying, um, it's, it's brutal, you know? And she had, she had lost a lot. Her husband had been dead for decades. She had outlived the majority of her friends. When you're 96, 97, you're not like putting vacations on the calendar into the future for something to look forward to. There's not a lot circumstantially that she could find joy in, but her joy was found in Jesus. And she was a singer. And she would sing praises to Jesus. And actually, Julie, her daughter's over here, uh, captured um, just you know shortly before she died a song about counting her blessings. And I thought, man, I, I don't really have the authority to preach on this, but I'm going to let Rena preach on it. So I want to just show you a video of Rena worshiping towards the end here. And just listen to the words that she sings. Burden with a load of care Does the cross chip heavy to bear Count your many blessings Name them one by one And it will surprise you What the Lord has done Count your blessings, name them tongue by tongue. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them tongue by tongue, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Now, if you're not missing a little bit, check your pulse. <laughs> Here's joy, or here's Rena. Her life is coming to an end, and yet her joy is only beginning. It's only starting to dawn as she anticipates meeting Jesus face to face. And there's something about Rena's life. Her reasonableness was evident to people around her. Uh, she could complain, she could be bitter, but she found joy in Jesus. And so I want to, I just want to challenge you. I, I know this is true as we age. We don't tend to drift into godly living. Rena chose at some point in her life that she's going to find her joy in Jesus. And as she aged, she got sweeter and sweeter and sweeter. And I want to ask you, how are you tending as you age? If, if left to my flesh, I would be the cantankerous old man yelling at kids to get off my lawn. Like, I need, it's a discipline of joy for me. I need to choose to rejoice in Jesus. 
I need to follow Rena's lead and count my blessings, tongue by tongue, see what the Lord has done. Amen? What a witness. There's a command to joy, but a great witness to joy. The third perspective I want us to look at this morning, um, or the third, the third angle, is the perspective of joy. How do we get this joy? How do we get this kind of joy? I think there's a key. In fact, I think it's maybe the punchline of the whole passage Verse 5, it says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, and here it is, the Lord is at hand. Paul's talking about the return of Jesus Christ, the second advent. The Lord is at hand is Bible language for saying Jesus could come back at any moment. Jesus is coming back. In fact, just a, a few verses back, if you go back into 3 and verse 20, it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his. This is the ESV. The NIV says, We eagerly await the coming of a Savior. For the Christian, there should this, be this eager longing, like, Jesus, come back. Would you come back soon? Are you coming back soon? Jesus, would you come? There's an eagerness in our longing that gives us a perspective of joy. Now, I've said this even recently, I think in my last sermon, but I think that, that we, especially in, 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 in the West, uh, in our context, have a very low view of heaven and uh, an underappreciated desire for the return of Jesus. But I think if you look at Christians around the world who are maybe in less affluent cultures, they search the scriptures and they long for Jesus to return. And I think that maybe we're so comfortable that we've underappreciated how wonderful and glorious that day will be and what heaven is going to look like. And just cards on the table, one of my side missions at City Light is to sort of restore a biblical picture of heaven and plant a seed of longing for the return of Christ as Christians have always had since Jesus first ascended into heaven. We should eagerly long for him to come back. This week I was reading in, in the Gospels in Matthew chapter 25. It's the passage of the sheep and the goats. And it's this amazing picture. It says at the beginning of chapter 5, it says that, on that day, Jesus will return in all of his glory with all of his angels with him. And he will sit on a glorious throne and he will assemble all the nations of the earth before him and he will start dividing out the sheep and the goats. And I want you just to use your imagination and picture that scene. Whether you've trusted Jesus or not, you will see him on that last day. He will be visible to everyone in creation. And on that last day, use your imagination now because you're going to see it. You're going to see the Lord come. And it says, in all of his glory. So the return of Jesus, he's not coming back as an infant like his first coming. He's coming back in all of his divine attributes visible to everyone. The Lord's going to descend in glory. And it says that all of his angels are with him. I don't know what that looks like, but I know that in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11, it gives a picture of God's mighty angels, and it says there's 10,000 times 10,000 angels. That's 100 million angels. So when it says that Jesus is coming back in all of his glory with all of his angels, picture 100 million angels filling the sky. You've never seen 100 million of anything in your life, but in that moment you will see 100 million angels filling the sky in Jesus Christ in all of his glory, and you're going to see it, and he's going to come down, and it says he's going to sit on a glorious throne. He's going to assemble all the nations of the earth, and you will be among them. And picture that moment when you see Jesus in his glory with his angels on his glorious throne, and he locks eyes with you, and he knows everything about you. And he's God, and he's holy, and you're naked before him. And he says, your name is written in the book of life. You have trusted in me and my atoning work. Welcome, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
Welcome into your reward. And he invites you into the new heavens and the new earth and the new kingdom. And on that day, he's going to make all the wrongs right. And he's going to restore our bodies to their original design. And he's going to restore the earth to its original design. And he's going to restore all of our broken relationships to be whole again. And he's going to wipe away every tear. And he's going to heal every disease. And he's going to usher in joy unimaginable in his presence. And in that moment... The time that you got overlooked for the promotion is just not going to feel so significant. Your friend not texting you back right now is not going to feel so cataclysmic. Even the deepest of your pains, those that you've lost, the divorce that you never thought you would go through, even in those moments, they'll be wiped away as you'll be enthralled with the presence of God. And it says the joy unimaginable, joy unending will be yours forever in his presence. So why do we have joy We have a perspective of joy. Verse 5, the Lord is at hand. Amen? He can come back at any moment. So I think Paul's just pleading with us. Keep things in perspective. The Lord could come back at any moment. Don't get distracted in this world. The Lord is at hand. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be seen by everyone. The Lord is at hand. I want to end our time in the Word of God this morning. Um... In kind of a different way, what strikes me about this letter when Paul wrote it, um, it's recorded in Acts chapter 16, when God called him to this region called Macedonia, and he goes to Philippi, and he plants this church, and he gets arrested. And that first night, when he, I assume it's the first night, when he's in Philippi, it says that he went to jail, him and his buddy Silas, their church planting buddies, and it says that at midnight, they were singing songs of praise. I thought, why was Paul singing in that moment? I think it was to remind his heart to be glad in God. Why was Rena Arendt singing as she prepared to see Jesus? I think it was a, both the overflow of her joy and a spiritual discipline to remind her heart to be happy in God. And so as a church family, I want us to be a singing church, not just because it's what we do as a church. We sing to fill time till the sermon starts. No, no, no. We sing to worship God, but we also sing to remind our hearts, a spiritual discipline, heart, You be happy in God. This is what's true. And so would you stand to your feet with me? Can we end by singing joy to the world with just our voices? The choir's going to come back up, and they're going to lead us in a minute, but let's lead them with this one. And let's just appreciate the sound of our voices and uh, the, the words of this song as we sing it together as a discipline of joy.